Welcome to this podcast from Central, Jesus at the Heart. More information is available from www.jesusattheheart.org. Bibles to the book of uh, the letter of 1 John and chapter 5 and uh, we're going to take a look at one very particular verse and I want to teach in a very different way uh, this morning so if you have pens and paper uh, that might help you because we're going to think about some things very rationally and logically I told you it'd be different uh, today rationally and logically and uh, if you take notes it'll just make me feel really encouraged that you're actually listening to what I'm saying so we've done a, a whole series saying this is love God is love and we've done it against the backdrop of a world where almost everyone appears to be looking and searching for love even if they wouldn't articulate it looking and searching for meaningful connection because that's the way we're wired. It's not surprising, isn't it, that our adverts are full of it, our magazines are sold by it, and our movies create caricatures of it. We're all after love. And so we've been teaching a series predicated on the understanding that there is love of a different kind. There is love of a different quality. There is love that transcends the kind of love that Hollywood wants to talk about. There is love that is covenantal, not just transactional. There is love in this universe that is unconditional, not conditional. There is love that is eternal, not just temporary. And we've been taking a look at some writing that the Apostle John has been penning. And, and if, if you like, he's the love apostle. The love apostle. Because he writes about Jesus and the whole context of what he's saying is, is, is love. I mean, it's shot through with love. He's the one who tells us that Jesus says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He's the one who, lay, who, who lent his head on the chest of Jesus. He's the one who describes himself as the beloved disciple. He's the one who was there at the crucifixion and then at the resurrection. He's the one who was there at the restoration of peace who is, understands what love truly looks like. And he's the one, according to legend, who's like the last man standing of the disciples. And his message is love. Again and again and again, his message is love. They, they say that they, they used to carry him around somehow in his, somewhere in his 90s and he would go from place to place, from Christian community to Christian communities, just saying, love one another. And one John's all about love. John has been saying, see how great the love the Father has for you, has lavished upon you. See how incredible the love of God is for you. And then he's been saying, because of that love, you're supposed to love one another. That's what's supposed to happen. The love is supposed to flow into you and then through you and out of you in such a way that everyone gets touched by the love of God. That's what this is for. We're supposed to be love carriers, love bearers. God is love. And then John says this. 1 John chapter 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And we think, how, how in the world is that 
consistent with everything he's been saying? Hasn't he just gone and changed the subject? Well, no, he's not changed the subject. He's saying there is no way that you are going to flow with the love of God unless the flow comes into you. There is no way that the flow of the love of God can come out of you unless the flow of the love of God comes into you. And there is only one access point to the love of God. There is only one on-ramp to this kind of radical, eternal, covenantal love. There is only one way that you're going to live a life of love that is consistent and sustained, and that's that you believe in Jesus. That you trust in Jesus. So you put the full weight of your life on Jesus. This is the climax of his letter. The way in and the way on to a life of love is a life fully devoted to Jesus. It's wonderful to baptize Wes and Katie today. And and as they stand in the water, they're saying, I want to live a life of love. I want to stand and grow in the flow of love. I want to experience the love the Father has for me, and that love is going to flow through me, so I become a bearer of love. And the heart and the start of all of that is, yes, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe that he died and that he rose again, and he did so for me. And so I want to do something very different today and come at this question about sustaining a life of love in a different way. If, if the key to the door is Jesus, and if the way in is Jesus, then there is a question that begs to be answered, and here it is. It's not the question that you think, probably. The question is this. Is it intellectually credible to believe in the Jesus that is presented in this book? Is it intellectually credible to believe in the Jesus that's presented in this book? That's so important. It's so important because it's not the question that our postmodern pluralist culture wants us to ask. That question is, is Jesus Christ experientially satisfying? That's the question the world wants wants to know. Does Jesus work for me? Does Jesus work for my life? Does Jesus enhance my lifestyle? Does he fit? And that's an important question, but it's not the question. The question is, is this true? Does it actually make sense? And the reason that it's not the most important question is that every philosophy and every worldview and every religion can produce people who say, it works for me. I have joy and meaning in my life right now. I'm better because of this group of people, this new way of thinking, this new approach. Every, every religion, every philosophy can produce people who say that. Whether it's Buddhist, whether it's Hindu, whether it's Muslim, whether it's Manchester United fans, they can produce people who say, it's better for my life that I've experienced this thing. But what if it's just a placebo effect? What if you feel good for a while but it can't work for you? Ultimately, It doesn't save you ultimately. It can't deal with your ache. It can't answer your questions. It can't give you ultimate purpose. It can't give you wisdom ultimately. It can't give you real love. Christianity is characterized by a willingness to say, yes, this works. It works like anything else. Nothing else works like this. But it's also true. The world around us says it's true because it works. Christianity says it's true because it's true. Does 
today, you come to Jesus Christ and come to faith, not because it's relevant, although it certainly is. Don't get baptized because it's exciting, although it's the most exciting thing in all the world to know that there is a Father in heaven who loves us and has a plan. Don't come to him because it meets your need, although it will. Come to him because it's true. And because it's true, it'll then excite you in a way that nothing else excites you. It'll meet your need in a way that nothing else can ever meet your need. So, so how do you know that Christianity is true? How do we know that Jesus is true? How do we know that Jesus existed? How do we know that he is God? Let's just take a few minutes and, and see if we can work out whether Jesus Christ is a fact or, or just fiction. And, it, and it's fascinating, isn't it? When you read the New Testament, what you read is uh, Jesus made incredible claims and people had incredible opinions. Jesus Christ is making incredible claims and people had incredible opinions about who he was. Are you a prophet? Are you a good man? Are you a teacher? Who are you? Some people loved him. Lots of people hated him. And some people worshipped him. Let's pause here because this is really significant. This is huge. Some people came to him, many people came to him, bowed down before him and worshipped him as God. And what Jesus does with this is really significant. He doesn't tell them to go away, no, don't worship me, follow my teaching. He accepts worship as if he is God. And this is massive. Perhaps it's even bigger than you think it is. Let me suggest why that's the case. If, if I had two lists of people in front of you, if I had a list over here of the greatest people who've ever walked on this earth... And you could probably come up with a list. It would have some of the great religious leaders. It would have Buddha on there. You'd have Jesus on there. You might have some social things. You'd have Gandhi on there. You might have Nelson Mandela on there. You'd have this list of people who did incredible things. And depending upon your persuasion, Donald Trump might be on there. You'd have this guy, or not. You'd have this list of people who are just incredible. Everyone would agree there is a list of people that are incredible. And we could argue whether Jesus was top of that list or, or middle in that list or some, wherever. But he's on that list. There's no doubt at all that Jesus is on any list of the most influential people who ever walked this planet, probably top. Whether you believe in him as God or not, he's probably top, but he's definitely there. Let me give you another list. This list is the list of people who claim they're God. Okay? It's a list of crazy people. It's a list of people who had dysfunctional followers. It's a list of people who managed to convince maybe 10, 20, 30, 50, maybe even 100 people that they were God. It's got David Kadesh in, in the list. You've got all these, these crazy guys who formed cults, and it's got Jesus in that list. Now, there is nobody who's in this list who's in this list because that doesn't make any sense. Everybody on this list apart from one says, don't worship me. I'm not God follow my Buddha. Don't worship me. I'm not God. Follow my Dharma, my teaching. Follow my rule. Follow my way of life. Everyone else is saying, follow my example. Follow my teaching. Follow my philosophy. Follow my, don't worship me. I'm not God. Everyone over here is going, worship me. I'm crazy God. There is only one person who's on both lists. Perhaps the most influential person in the history of the world who also happens to appear on this list, who says he is God. You would have to be a fool 
not to seriously consider that that might be true. You would have to be a fool with no intellectual credibility not to at least engage with whether that is true or not because nobody does that. Nobody appears on both lists. The most influential figure in history. So if there's a chance... If there's a chance it's true and you don't engage with it or you miss out on it, your life is ruined. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life, no one comes to the Father except they come through me, you better believe it's not true. You better believe it's not true. You better be absolutely 100% certain it's not true. You'd be a fool not to engage with this question. So let's take a look at it. Have you ever looked at this? Have you ever seriously considered this stuff? I imagine many of you have, but I imagine there's some of you here who are convinced about Jesus who've never really seriously considered this stuff. And I imagine there are maybe one or two here who are not yet convinced about Jesus who've never really seriously considered this stuff. Is this true or not? Christianity stands or falls on whether this is true. If it's not true, you can feel whatever you feel in any given moment... But ultimately, it's just a placebo effect. It just makes you feel good. It has no basis of truth. So have you looked at the fact? Let's just deal with the facts for a few minutes. Fact number one. There was a man in Palestine who claimed to be God. And he claimed to bring the kingdom of God to earth. That's, That's big, isn't it? There's a man in Palestine who claimed to be God, who claimed to bring the kingdom of God to earth. Number two. As he went around with his disciples, the people who heard him speak and saw him do things said that they were miracles. 5,000 people got fed with a few fish and a few bread. Supposed to be walking on water. He raised people from the dead. He healed people. Now, now I'm not even going to suggest to you today that's true. I'm just going to say, but people thought it was true. People thought that he did miracles. And it's written about, and people attested to it. It's an incredible... Thirdly, he not only claimed to be God, but he also convinced people who live with him that he was God. I mean, that's huge, isn't it? The people who he ate with and he slept next to thought he was God. You can fool most of the people most of the time, but you can't fool your brother. Can you? You can fool most of the people most of the time, but you can't fool your wife. They, they know what's true and what's not. If I, if, I, if I decided tomorrow I was going to claim to be God, the first person who would out me is Nikki. Honestly, God doesn't do this. Let me tell you about God over here. Because the people who live next to him, but they, they lived and they died and they stood and they, they suffered because they believed that he was God. And, 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 and listen, keep in mind that the last people on the face of the earth who could possibly believe that a human being could be God would be first century Jews. The last people on the face of the earth who, who could possibly believe that a human being could be God are first century Jews. I mean, if you came from an Eastern religion background, you would probably not find it too difficult to believe that a human being could be God because God was spirit and spirit could live in people. And, and therefore, someone was going around claiming to be God. You say, well, yeah, I'm God, you're God, everyone's God. God's in everyone. If you came from a, a Western 
position back in the day, you would understand and believe in Roman and Greek gods. And Roman and Greek gods would often uh, kind of manifest as human beings to walk amongst human beings. And so it wasn't too difficult to think that God could be a human because he was probably a god just masquerading as a human being. But for a first century Jew, their whole basis and understanding that God was transcendent. God was other. God was so holy you couldn't even use his name. You couldn't speak his name because he was so holy. You had to describe him. You couldn't say his name because he was so holy. The Ten Commandments, the first two, say what? They say, do not worship any man-made thing. Anything created, don't worship it. And so Jesus stands up, starts speaking in the synagogue, starts claiming to be God, not just the Son of God or a God, but the God. It's totally unbelievable. Unbelievable. That any first century Jew would ever want in any way, shape or form to believe that this was true. Because God was beginningless. But the group of people surrounding Jesus, first century Jews, believed to the extent of giving their lives that he was who he said he was. Number four, after he died, hundreds of people testified that they saw him. They saw him alive. And it wasn't just one instance. It was many, many instances in different places. And and on one occasion, 500 people at one time. I have seen Jesus alive. Finally, listen, the experience of that changed so many people that they went out into the world and spread the good news. At great cost, at great cost, many of them died for what they believed. Because they had seen the risen God. And it spread like wildfire. This group of ragtag, underclass, many not that educated individuals transformed economically and morally at least 50% of the world who began to believe that Jesus really was God. That's a miracle, isn't it? That this could possibly happen. So, let's get rational again. I think we have four options. Rationally, we, we have four options. Most people get out from underneath the weight of evidence by saying, well, he's just a legend. Well, it's just a legend. This is, this, this is a great book, but it's just a legend. How do we know that any of this ever happened? How do we know that Jesus was? How do we really know that he claimed to be God or did miracles? Wasn't he just like any other charismatic leader? He has an interesting life. Everyone really likes him. And then he dies. And then, then people write, uh, write things about him. And then they exaggerate those things about him. And then the story grows. And, and, and before you know it, a guy that was really good became God. And everyone gets excited about, you know, that isn't, isn't that what happened? Let me give you three reasons why he can't just be a legend. Firstly, this book is not written like a legend it's written as history it's written as history one of the gospel writers Dr. Luke rational Dr. Luke says this right at the beginning of his gospel he says many others have drawn up accounts i.e. eyewitness accounts of Jesus I however have made a careful investigation I I wasn't an eyewitness But I've interviewed a whole bunch of eyewitnesses who were around. And and I'm writing like an investigative journalist around the person 
of Jesus Christ. This doesn't claim in any way, shape, or form to be legend. It claims to be history. It claims to be this is what happened. And, and the stuff in here is not good enough to be legend. It isn't. If you were writing legend, you'd make sure it all added up and all made sense. But there are stacks and stacks of things in the New Testament which you wouldn't put in there if you were writing legend. The stuff that's random. The stuff that's just kind of, why is that? That made any sense at all. You know, so the, the woman who's caught in adultery is drawing in the sand and we're not told why she's drawing in the sand or what it really means and people speculate about it. But it adds nothing to the story and you just wouldn't put it in there. You'd, you'd give a reason. It was because of this and this is how it happened and, and then there would be a story that could be told and everyone would tell the story. It's not written like legend. It's not, it's not supposed to be a legend. It's not good enough to be legend. It's not tight enough to be legend. And this, this history is backed by better evidence and verified by better evidence than any ancient historical document. It's been scrutinized in a greater way than any ancient historical document. It's been documented in a more substantial way. Seven or eight times the evidence that Jesus did the things that are said in here that he did than, than, than someone like Caesar invaded Gaul. We have no issues with Caesar invading Gaul. We believe it to be history that he invaded Gaul because we've got nine or ten copies of the fact that he invaded Gaul. It's a historical document. We've got thousands of copies of this being truth. If you, listen, if you doubt this, based on the historical evidence that Jesus did and said these things, if you doubt, you have to doubt every historical claim that has ever been made. Legend is not truth. And, 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 and these things written could not be lies. Why do, why do you say that, Carl? Well, because, because recent archaeological findings show us that the Gospels were written around 60 or 70 AD. And the epistles of Paul, the letters of Paul, are written about 20 years after the events that he's speaking about. And the reason that's important is this. If you're going to fabricate evidence and you're going to tell lies about what happened in the scriptures, you're going to wait until all the eyewitnesses are dead before you do it. Otherwise, people are going to say, no, that's not how it happened. 500 people are going to go, no, 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 we didn't see Jesus alive, actually. That, someone just made that up. That's a story. No, no, this didn't really happen because we're still alive to be able to testify to it. But these things were written in the lifetime of the people who saw the thing happened. It's really difficult to suggest this is a legend. Am I just biased? Of course I am. I've met Jesus. He's changed my life. Were they just biased? Possibly. But is bias the problem here? No, the issue, listen very carefully to this, the issue of bias is actually more of a problem for the skeptic than the believer. In my opinion, it's humble, but it's an opinion, why do you think that academic skeptics and unconvinced commentators find the person of Jesus in the New Testament so hard to endorse? Despite the huge, overwhelming body of opinion and fact that says there was a man called Jesus who did incredible things that can't be explained away. I'll tell you why. The stakes are too high. The stakes are too high. If this is true, you have to change the way you live. If the stuff in this book is true, you have to say there is a creator God who loves me 
who has a way to live life that demands things of me and it changes everything. You see, Caesar's Gallic Wars don't change anything. It doesn't actually make any, 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 any demand on my life that Caesar invaded Gaul, but it makes a radical demand on my life that there is a God in heaven who has a plan for my life, who loves me and has demands on my life because he comes as authoritative into my life. You would lose control of the rest of your life if you said this is true. You have a conflict of interest if you read this book. Because you're predisposed not to want this to be true. Because if it's true, it demands everything of you. It's not a legend. It's not a legend. And Jesus is not just a good man if that's what you're thinking right now. I mean, have you you read this thing? He couldn't just be a good man. Jesus has some stuff that's really disturbing. It's not the stuff of a good man. He says, nobody comes to the Father. I am exclusive. Worship me. The only way to God. He says this in a pluralist society. The only way to God. Not lots of ways to God. Not, yeah, your way, my way. No, no. The only way to God is you come through me. He says even more disturbing things. He says, if you want to follow me, you've got to hate your father and mother. And that's not good stuff, is it? He's not saying, he's saying good stuff. He's saying this, you've got to give everything to me. Your love for me has to be so high that your love for anything else is going to look like hate in comparison. That's what he's saying. I'm demanding everything. I am the only way to ultimate reality. I am ultimate reality. He's saying if there's anything keeping you from me, pluck it out. Get rid of it. Anything. Physical, emotional, spiritual, get rid of it. This is not the stuff of a good man. No good person says this kind of thing. It doesn't leave that open to you. And he's not a lunatic either. Not a madman, just in case you're hanging on to that apologetic. An interviewer asked Bono, Mr. U2, this. Christ has his rank among the world's great thinkers, but son of God, isn't that too far-fetched? Bono replied this. No, it's not far-fetched to me. Look, the secular response to the Christian story always goes like this. He was a great prophet, obviously a very interesting guy. But actually, Christ doesn't allow you that. He doesn't let you off the hook. Christ says, I am God incarnate. So what you are left with is either Christ was who he said he was or a complete nutcase. I'm not joking here that the idea that the entire course of civilization for over half the globe could have its fate changed and turn upside by a nutcase for me is far-fetched. I mean, look at the effect of his life. Look at the effect of Jesus' life down through the ages. Look at the positive things done in his name. I mean, the focus of this kind of argument usually goes towards the negative things done in his name. You know, the, the, the horrendous things, the crusades and the inquisitions and the wars and the genocides. But, but check out hospitals and schools and orphanages and social justice and addressing issues of poverty and violence and sex trafficking and missional activity and scientific discovery. Jesus inspired the greatest scientific minds of our world, the greatest governmental systems, the greatest peace treaties, Millions and millions and millions of people claim to have been inspired and provoked by the love of Jesus. And check out his beauty and check out his life. This is not the life of a lunatic or a liar. Check out his compassion and his truth and his love and his grace and his mercy. Look at his person. It would have been really cool to be around Jesus, don't you think? 
He went to a party and there was no wine, so he turned a whole lot of water into the first-class wine. He was, a, he was just the greatest people. He went to a funeral and he ruined the whole funeral by raising the guy from the dead. You know, this is a guy you wanted to be around. This is an attractive guy. This is a guy who changes lives. Look at his healings. Look at his authority. When, the book, when this book describes him, it names him. And when you listen to his names, it raises the hairs on your arm because his names are game-changing. The prophets call him Wonderful Counselor because he has all wisdom. The prophets call him Mighty God because he has all power. The prophets call him Everlasting Father because he has all compassion and mercy and grace. The prophets call him Prince of Peace because he comes to restore humanity to its rightful place. The prophets call him Lion of the tribe of Judah because he has all power. The prophets call him Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world because he's taken his power and he's given it sacrificially for us so that we might live. The poets call him Lily of the Valley and Bright Morning Star because he is beautiful. But the historians say that he is the shepherd of the sheep and the gates to the door and the way and the truth and the life and the bread of life and the living water and the king of kings and the lord of lords and no one is stronger and no one is wiser and no one is more loving his name is Jesus his name means he will save his people from their sins his name means his title is lord it means boss Governor, ultimate decision maker. His promise is Christ, the anointed one of God. Listen, guys, this might have been unlike any sermon you've ever heard me preach. But the only alternative to the belief that Jesus really is the son of God, the only alternative to the belief that the only way into the love of God and the only way to flow with the love of God is this person called Jesus is the belief in a far, far greater miracle. That a ragged group of first century followers of a builder managed to persuade the greatest empire in the world that Jesus was God to such an extent that over 50% of them began to follow him and change their moral behavior. And then over centuries, change every arena of culture, every way of thinking because of something that was not true. That would be a miracle. The unescapable option is this that he is not legend and he is not liar and he is not lunatic but he is Lord and if he is Lord that he is here present have you have you met him like these guys have met him have you met him because you can do so today and, and, and you would know if you've met him. You would know. Because, because when you read this, there is no shadow of doubt that when you meet Jesus, there is a radical reaction. Every time you meet Jesus, there is a reaction. You hate him, you fear him, or you love him. You can't stand him, 
you're scared of him or you adore him because he is the single most important person in the history of this world. He's the only one in both lists. He's the only one at the top of both lists. And he is here. What do you mean him today? Because the moment that you meet him is the moment that you get love for the first time. The moment that you meet him is the moment that you have an opportunity to receive love for the first time. The moment that you meet him is the moment that you have an opportunity to flow with this love for the first time. And he is here. Let's pray. You know, the Spirit of God, Holy Spirit, who is here right now, number one job of Holy Spirit is to introduce us to the person and truth of Jesus. Number one job. And when you get introduced to Jesus, number two job is he wants to create the life of Jesus in you. So just in these moments, we're going to ask Holy Spirit to come and and help us encounter the person of Jesus, the truth of Jesus. So much so that historical truth becomes experiential truth. Holy Spirit, would you come? And would you introduce us to the person of Jesus? We trust that knowing Jesus will change everything. So come Holy Spirit. Wow. Come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. And, And in the quietness, just as the band prepares, you're aware they are. Why don't you just in your heart invite Jesus? See, the thing about Jesus is that although he appears on both lists, he's not a bully. He's not a bully. He will not force himself upon you. He waits to be invited. He waits to be invited. So why don't you just ask him, Jesus, I want to know you. I want to receive you. I want to live in your love. Just do that now. And we're going to start worshipping. Our prayer team are going to be to my right and to your left. And you know, they, they're going to, they want to do one singular thing today. They want to pray for you if you want to know Jesus. They want to pray for you if you want to know Jesus. Whether that's for the first time. You just realize you don't know Jesus. You've never encountered him. You've never had that extreme response to him. You never thought, do I love him? Do I hate him? Do I fear him? Will I follow him? And there are others of you who confidence in the person of Jesus is really weak and low and you'd love just for someone to pray for you around, do I really know Jesus? Do I really walk with him? And we'd love to do that as well. So let's just stand together. Let's worship. Prayer team to my right. Let's just respond to this person of Jesus. He is here.